essentially 4.27 in the afternoon. You're listening to the conclusion of Freeform with DJ Electronica. I hope you have enjoyed the music. And, well, the last that you heard ended with a song called The Sugarfoot Stomp by King Oliver's Creole Jazz, then To Trap a Spy by Pimp Daddy Nash, then Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Fast Johnny Ricker, then La Astronave Che Arriva by Sergio Caputo, then Muddy River by Ketio Lee, and then Gloria Three by Choir of the Benedictine Nuns of St. Michael's Abbey. Well, everyone have a good rest of your afternoons, have safe rides home, and good evenings. The song I shall leave you with before, uh, before Living Writers begins is called Distance by Karsh Kale. Enjoy, everyone.
Listening to Living Writers. My name is T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Daniel Handler. <laughs> That's you. That is. That is I. <laughs> uh, welcome, Daniel. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for being here. Well, it is a pleasure to be in such luxurious surroundings <laughs> as the studio here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Nicely said. Have Thank you, you very much. Have you ever said that before? I have said that before, uh, and I, I used to work in radio, though not in front of the microphone. Um, How, what did you do then? Well, uh, my one of my first, uh, actually, my first paid writing gig um, was writing uh, radio scripts for a show, for several shows in San Francisco, for a producer uh, there. He had his production company, and I would write scripts. Most famously, for the House of Blues Radio Hour, oh, hosted by Dan Aykroyd in the persona of Elwood Blues. Um, so I would write scripts for that show. And what what year was that, Daniel? Like, give us a little time. Because you said it's your first writing gig where you got paid. Right. Right, not <laughs> to qualify it, I'm sure. Um, let's see. I think I started doing that in 1994, maybe 94 through 96, something was, like that. So that was so that was post-Wesleyan? Yeah, it was... Um, it, 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 yeah, it was it was post uh, Wesleyan, and um, and and then I had a like a crummy job answering phones for a while, and then I had and then I had this job, which was uh, for the time, and considering that it wasn't very much work, was extraordinarily paid. And that was that after your job from um, let's see, where it was like the City College of San Francisco with right. the, that was the with first the job answering phones at the uh, computer science department at the City College of San Francisco. That's what trips off my mouth so easily, actually. Computer science department at the City College of San Francisco, because I said that I said that so many times when I was at that job. I right, still say that phrase. And maybe answering the phone at home at, during that time. Oh, all the time, <laughs> I would answer the phone That's... and say. Uh, computer science department at the City College of San Francisco, and my wife would say, "No, it isn't, honey. <laughs> Come back. That's to your me. home. Come back to me." Um, well, let's see. Daniel Handler is yes. the author of the novels *The Basic Eight and *Watch Your Mouth*, and as Lemony Snicket, a sequence of children's novels collectively entitled *A Series of Unfortunate Events*. Um, That's true, and that book *Adverbs*. I'm the <laughs> author I, of that one. That's right. That's which is quite important. <laughs> the one important. that you were reading the bio from is also the one I've written. It seems <laughs> it seems like that should be self-evident. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but not to people listening and streaming. No, that's true. <laughs> without the visual cues. That was one of the running jokes in my radio scripts for the House of Blues Radio Hour. Was um, and now a special message for our viewers: Why are you viewing a radio? <laughs> that was viewer. our running gag. <laughs> Just to call people viewers and then to give them a hard time. Exactly. What do you see now, Bob? Hello, viewers of WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Keep your eyes on the road. Don't view the radio. Listen to the radio. 
and maybe your computer, right? Some do your yeah, I don't oh, know. Oh yeah. Cuz a lot of people Right, I forgot the kids today yeah, listen the kids to the radio <laughs> on the computer. <laughs> the kids today. Well, um so let's let's uh, fill out a little bit more of your your biography, your biography, Daniel. Certainly. Um so so you uh you were born in San Francisco and and I hear you went actually to Lowell High School. It is some, true. Yeah, Gus Rose went there. Somebody who, oh, yeah? Yeah, a lecturer and writer here at the school. And so they said, hey. Hey, yes. Uh, Carol Channing went to Lowell High School. Not at the same time, though. No, but I, <laughs> uh, I, I played tuba in the uh, Lowell High School band um, uh, to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater. Um, uh, went, so she came to Lowell High School. So we were at Lowell High School at the same time that day, but we did not attend Lowell High School at the same time. But she came to dedicate the Carol Channing Theater. And and you have uh and you played the tuba for that. Is that and something Is that the last live tuba performance that you except for other band concerts at Lowell High School? Yes. But once I graduated from Lowell High School, that was the end of my tuba days. I haven't picked up a tuba since graduation day in 1988. Is is that Hey, 1988. Hey. Was that? <laughs> um, why? So, what does it take to play the tuba? Because you know, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> well, a lot of an it. inability oh, to be embarrassed by having a having a tuba in front of you. It's a, it's a very very <laughs> instrument to play, at least to play as well as you have to play it in a high school band. Because um, it's more of a series of. Like boom, boom. Yes, yeah. it was. Well, we were mostly uh, we weren't. We didn't actually march, but we sat in the bleachers and played during football games. And those bass lines are um, they're pretty simple uh, for those marching songs. Um, Is that what was was that uh, like? How did you leap from the tuba to the accordion? Because the accordion seems to be a pretty big part of your life. Um, it has become one. Yes, I took piano lessons throughout my childhood. Um, and then the tuba was just something to do in band. I don't know. But come to think of it, I have no idea why I played the tuba, and I played it for seven years. I, pl- I started it in middle school, and then I played it in high school. Um, but then when I reached uh, college, as other people who graduated uh, high school in 1988 might be able to attest, there was this uh, brief moment in American pop music where no keyboard instruments were cool whatsoever, and I wanted to be in bands, and nowadays, that seems kind of unthinkable that you couldn't play the keyboard and be in a band. Of course you can. And of course you could right before that, the 80s. Yes, the 80s. But then like somehow the late 80s and the early 90s, it just wasn't cool at all. And so I took up the accordion. Which was which always I, cool. Which was cool Never. then in a, um, in a kind of folky, REM adjunct kind of way. So the first band I was in in college, we tried to sound like the Cowboy Junkies. That was our um, oh, nice. modus operandi, which also seems equally unthinkable now. But, <laughs> but they have some beautiful songs. <laughs> it's true, and they just um, released a, a re-recording of the album that put them on the map. I, I just was uh, walking by a, a, a record store, and in the window was a big thing that said, the Trinity Sessions revisited, and it occurred to me that it must be 20 years. Oh, good Lord. Which is kind of depressing uh, oh. for those of us who remember that album as being kind of an underground hit and not a VH1, uh, you know, kind of Starbucks wallpaper that it is today. But anyway, at the time, that's why I took up the accordion. It's only going to get worse, isn't it, with things like that, Daniel? With For the cowboy oh. movie? I don't know. <laughs> really. They're Canadian, I believe, so it's, they're, they're probably immune. okay. 
<laughs> they're they're always they have health insurance. Happier. And they they ha- you have to play a certain amount of Canadian music on Canadian radio. Oh, that, um, yeah. that's the law. So they'll I think they'll be okay for a long time. Margot Timmons, that was the name oh, of the singer. Right. Yeah. These she had that breathy, sweet Jane. She had that going on. That seemed very sexy at the time. And still does. I have had I only know. <laughs> well, o- Especially when only you do the it, listeners Daniel. of the radio can confirm that or not. Exactly. <laughs> I'm married, ladies. Sorry. <laughs> well, so there's more of your biography. So you went to Wesleyan. That's, and that's right. Is that, that's where you met Lisa Brown? It is, is where it? I met Lisa Brown. Uh, I suffered from a seizure disorder uh, in college, and um, I was in Chaucer class, and I had a seizure and passed out in the lap of uh, a woman uh, named Lisa Brown. So when I woke up from my seizure, we had to get to know one another. We sort of knew one another beforehand, but we definitely got to know each other better, and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We were married. I mean, we were married many years later. Okay. But I I wasn't really sure how how to give the complete history of my relationship. It went the way relationships go. You know, we grew closer. We made out. You know how it works. Right. Well, thank you, though. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Providing some titillating moments in the swing space. Um all right. Well, and so so then we Wesleyan then moved back to San Francisco upon graduation, and uh, and then w- and with bummed around there for a while, and then moved to New York, and right. bummed around there, and then moved back to San Francisco where I live to this day. And with the uh, with the with the writing, Daniel, when was uh, you said yesterday? Uh, this I should say I should have mentioned this at the top of the uh, our time. Uh, this is pre-taped, uh, and and Daniel Handler uh, was in town to give the Sarah Lamstein Children's Literature Lecture, and uh, well done. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, it was a great, well, that, a great I, talk. I was going to say well done. You were able to put that all into a sentence. Uh, it was great fun. It was a nice talk. It, it, it was seems particularly it, ridiculous to talk about it when not only has it happened now, but it will have happened <laughs> even longer ago by the time this show is aired. It's like this is <laughs> remember way back then. That's right. <laughs> this is a time capsule of you, but in a time warp. So <laughs> it's all sorts of crazy. Um, but but then uh, at that point, uh, Daniel, you had you had mentioned uh, that uh, you were were writing and and had. Uh, you you'd used your job at the City College of San Francisco to get reams of paper, which was great, like um, a government grant of paper. You That's felt definitely like. <laughs> how I justified stealing paper from work was that I was working at the City College of San Francisco, which is a public institution, and so it had city and state and federal mon- money. And I think I always think there ought to be more city, state, and federal money for local um, writers for, uh, local for, writer. for the arts. So I said, well, this is a way to do it. Yes. I'll steal paper. <laughs> One remit at a time. I'm not sure that follows, really, but <laughs> it's still the advice I give many a writer when they say, what's the advice you give to a writer? I say, work someplace where you can steal paper. And and so that, you were definitely uh, identified as a writer then. Like, you're, you're like, I'm a writer. I identified myself yes. as a writer. I was not identified by anyone else as a writer, but I wanted to be a writer, yes. And, and as a child, you said that you don't understand when people say, oh, kids don't read, because you were always reading. You're a voracious reader. I cannot... Yes. I, I, it, oftentimes what happens when you write for children is that people want to know your opinion on how to make children read more. And I always think I'm, I, I have no idea because I was, no, I was nothing but an obsessive reader um, 
in, uh, in in childhood, and so I I I have nothing to add to that. To me, books are are their own reason to read. So I don't. Um, yeah, the- I, I'm never able to help that. As sympathetic as I am to the problem. So, so when did you? So, so you've always read, uh, loved books. But when did you? Was that so the natural? Did did you just start writing when you were a young age as oh, well? I always like creating. To be a writer. I can't remember a time that when I didn't want to be a writer. Um, there, my parents tell this uh, story about me that when I was five. Um, Someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said that I wanted to be one of those wise men who lived on top of a mountain, and other people would climb the mountain and ask him for advice, which um, <laughs> I don't remember thinking that, but if that story is true, then that was the only other employment plan I ever had. But I feel like you've realized that now with Ben Gibbard. <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> we can't talk about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> There's a juicy story that must not be discussed on the radio involving uh, mysticism and Ben Gibbard. If Sorry, only, everyone. If only we had mimosas That's to right. go with that mysticism. <laughs> so that was your other career option. So maybe, you know, uh, your parents were actually relieved. They thought, oh, how practical. He wants to be a writer when that came up. <laughs> <laughs> well, but... It, it, but really soon afterwards, I must have wanted to be a writer. I mean, I wanted to be a writer uh, when I was in elementary school. So did you write a book so. in elementary school? Were you sort of... I did. I wrote a book uh, called uh, Plankton! Exclamation point About a piece of plankton <laughs> that grew large and began attacking the city. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, well, I... <laughs> I, I, w- <laughs> I would like I don't know to- why I, I agreed so readily that that's wonderful. I don't... I, that book must be somewhere in my childhood house, but I haven't seen it since um, its initial um, I, printing of one copy. Do you, do, you, do you remember, like, what gave you that idea? Like, had you just seen... Because it sounds like those some of those horror films where it's, like, no matter what it is, like, and it's, you know, like... Uh, bats and then like like so this horror story of like you know my first story for example was mm-hmm. something that was like a total rip off of you know the Bambi story oh, <laughs> and right. so you wonder like and you don't know it when you're starting to write it oh there's a fire oh there's a baby well, my very bear first cub and story was about an egg um, who uh, ate radios <laughs> like a uh, so a, a voracious kind of anthropomorphized uh, egg. That was my first story. But the first book was Plankton! Exclamation <laughs> point. <laughs> and, and now we can, we, after knowing that information, we can sort of trace your, your growth as a, as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Too many exclamation points, yes. No. <laughs> um, and so also you, you had mentioned uh, earlier uh, that the basic eight, your 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 first novel that it was, it was sort of heartening because you said it was well okay that's not the right way to put it heartening it's because it was rejected thirty seven times that's so that heartening. wasn't heartening at the no, time no. no but for others that are sending out yeah so that was uh, when did you have that uh, completed the basic eight in your when did I have it completed let's see probably around ninety five. Um, and then I, I managed quite quickly to find a literary agent, which was um, a blessing. Um, but then she, uh, she she was the one who forwarded me the 37 letters of rejection um, over oh. the, the the three years that followed. Um, was it your first it was, novel? The like- novel was purchased in 1998 and published in 1999. 
Okay. Was it, um, not to get Nick picky about the dates, Daniel, but was there like other novels that you had that have been like they're put into drawers or is this was sort of yeah, the I'd one that you Yeah, I've written a novel previous to The into. Basic Eight that is still in a drawer, literally in a, in a um, plastic bin. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and then I wrote, uh, I started a novel, I started two novels while waiting for The Basic Eight to, to sell. The first one was eventually became Watch Your Mouth, and the other novel was this novel that was uh, to be called A Series of Unfortunate Events, which was a kind of false start of what turned out to be 13 books. Um, We'll take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers, and today, Daniel Handler. afternoon if you're just tuning in today on living writers daniel handler and uh, and that that little number was from the gothic archies daniel a few words <laughs> um i i i believe that uh the world is a very scary place is my favorite song on the gothic archies uh record uh the tragic treasury um uh which is a collection of songs um uh, each one written about a volume in a series of unfortunate events, uh, written uh, by Mr. Stephen Merritt, best known for as leading the magnetic fields, but he leads a number of bands. The Sixths. The Sixths. It's <laughs> so hard to say. Well, that's why. <laughs> he named uh, The Sixths because um, it was the hardest thing he could think of to say on the radio. The Sixths' <laughs> first album is Wasps' Nests, <laughs> and The Sixths' <laughs> second album is Hyacinths and Thistles. Um, he Nicely also was in a band called uh, Future Bible Heroes. And then there's the Gothic Archies, who had uh, one uh, EP a number of years ago called The New Despair. And then he began writing uh, songs at my request, or kind of at my demand, uh, for each volume of a series of unfortunate events. And when the 13th book was released, we had The Tragic Treasury, which contains 13 songs plus a couple of uh, bonus tracks, as they're called in the business. Ooh. <laughs> um, but that's my, um, that's my favorite one. And and you were you were actually here in town a, a couple of years ago when the end came out. That's right. And and Stephen Merritt was was on tour here with you as well. It was yeah. It was sort of a Gothic Archie's tour. Um, I play a, a, a couple of instruments on a couple of songs. Um, on sixty nine love songs. Too, oh, on sixty nine right? love songs. The accordion I, is you. I, the, I am the accordionist. I'm I'm pretty much the adjunct accordionist for the Magnetic Fields. Um, 
So I've played on a few of their records, and on the the Tragic Treasury, I played a couple of other uh, things, and um, and so I, so then we ended up touring together. So I sort of became the the other full fledged member of the Gothic Archies. Um, when we toured, it was uh, myself on accordion and um, uh, Mr. Merritt on uh, ukulele and then uh, Lemony Snicket on percussion, but he never showed up. So we had all these <laughs> percussion instruments set up and mic'd, but um, he never he never came. <laughs> yeah, what about that? <laughs> um, well, he, he never uh, shows up to any uh, readings. It's, it's a wonder that people still come to them. I'm it's, always there in his place. Do you feel like a burden of that? Like sort of having to be the representative and it's do like... Do I feel a burden? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> Mr. Snicken and I have worked out an arrangement that is, <laughs> that's mutually beneficial. So no, I don't feel overly burdened <laughs> by that. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm a relatively unburdened person. That's right. And always accept a breath mint. Uh, well, never refuse a breath mint oh, never. Is, how, is how I like to put it. Um, but it just happened uh, last night. I won't name any names here in the Ann Arbor community. But uh, I was uh, uh, um, in a social situation, and I took uh, a tin of breath mints out of my bag and said, who wants a breath mint? And, of course, the person who I wanted most to accept a breath mint said, no, I'm fine. <laughs> Oh, you are so not. You you never refuse a breath mint. You never, if you have a breath mint in your mouth, you don't refuse a breath mint because you never know when you're being offered a breath mint whether it's just kind of a polite sharing or whether it's a way of saying you smell badly and you would smell better. I would, I wish you smelled of peppermint. Exactly. And it's issuing forth. Um, well, well. Uh, yesterday, you were you were also talking a lot about like the the, the birth of Lemony Snicket. Um, uh, well, not the actual literal right. birth, but um, when you were talking on the, uh, I guess calling up, you were doing research, and it just the name came to you, and you honestly had, and you just said it to on the phone to to uh, you were signing up for some right wing. Well, literature. yeah, I was calling um, um, <laughs> conservative organizations uh, in order to get their. Uh, their materials sent to me so I could mock them in the basic eight, which I was writing at the time on stolen paper um, (laughs) from the city college of San Francisco. And uh, I didn't want to be permanently on the mailing list of such organizations. Um, And so a woman on the phone asked me, so what's your name, sir? So we can send you these materials. And I just opened my mouth and said, Lemony Snicket. Isn't, isn't that amazing? Because that just like popped out. Lemony. Yes. And I, and I didn't even, it didn't even sound like two words when it came out of it's my mouth. Just, you know, I, I just. Thought, that's your first. I just, <laughs> it was some short circuit in the brain. Um, you know, because John Smith, for instance, would have been a perfectly acceptable thing to say. And... Um, and she said, is that spelled how it sounds? And I said, yes. And uh, please read that back to me because I had no idea how it sounded like it was spelled. Um, and then it became this joke. And this was long before I thought I would write anything for children, let alone write anything under a different name. Um, and it became a joke uh, uh, between my friends and I, who uh, uh, between my friends and me. Uh, and uh, one birthday, they chipped in and went to Kinko's and made business cards that said Lemony Snicket. And as my job, it said rhetorical analysis. Um, 
And then for a while, and so I would go to bars sometimes and say, like, hello, I'm Lemony Snicket. I'm in rhetorical analysis. Like, if you ever need me, give me a call. Um, and uh, we had a cocktail called the Lemony Snicket. And oh, what's that made of? What are the parts? Of- well, it was born, you know, this again was in my youth, straight out of college, and no one had any money. Uh, but a friend of ours had a lemon tree in her backyard that was... Uh, produced unspeakable amounts of lemons just you couldn't and you you, there's nothing really you can do with a whole lot of lemons you know she would say oh i'm gonna make a lemon cake and then it turns out with a lemon cake you need like a a juice and a half and um you know we needed something where you could use 80 lemons and so we pulped them and juiced them and then we um the the first round the first time we made lemony tickets, it was white rum. It was for some reason a bottle of white rum that was lying around, and we had that and a little bit of uh, soda. But it, but it kind of became whatever you could do with Amanda Wiley's lemons and liquor <laughs> was a lemony snicket. That's good. So it constantly sort of changing too. And well, uh, which yeah. is the hist- yeah. I, I like cocktails a lot, and the history of cocktails is always about that. That. Um, you know, that, that there, there's all sorts of kind of uh, recipe, you know, like anything else, like any other kind of cooking. There's cake, but there's n- none of the cake. N- there's no real cake. They're all different kinds of cake. And um, martinis and old fashions and Manhattans, they all used to be about how it was flavored because the liquor during Prohibition, it was kind of whatever liquor you could get. Um, so you would call it whatever cocktail you could you could drum up, really. It's, it's yeah. So cocktails have sort of a, a, a valued place in the in the the history of uh, writers in general and you. <laughs> you... <laughs> writers in general and me. That's right. Because <laughs> whether you're a writer in general or me, or a general, you might enjoy cocktails. Because <laughs> over sidecars, that's when you you sort of first started talking about uh, Lemony Snicket to one of your your pals who you were actually. Um, well, she wasn't really a pal. She oh, oh. was uh, she was an editor at a publishing house. But you um, were just kind then and took her out when she lost her job. Um, I did. Uh, um, yeah, sorry. There was a <laughs> sudden, no- strange, sudden ambient noise in the studio, but we're ignoring it. Um, it. This was still before the Basic Gate uh, had been published. And um, in desperation, my literary agent had sent it to a couple of editors who edited, uh, edited novels for young adults because the novel is set in a high school. And it's not really a young adult novel. And particularly then, the climate has changed for that uh, now. But back then, it definitely wasn't for teenagers. You couldn't publish books for teenagers that had sex and drugs and uh, murder. Um, only plucky characters, as yes. you said. Well, only kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, a very cheerful high school novels were being published. And uh, so this editor read it and she said, well, I can't publish it, but I do think you ought to write something uh, for children. And then she was laid off. And then I took her out for drinks. And then she owed me drinks. And she said, um, but I still think you ought to write something uh, for children. And I had been working on this novel, a series of unfortunate events that I had then abandoned because I it... It wasn't making any sense to me, and it suddenly became clear that if the protagonists were children, the story was much more interesting and much more workable. But I still thought it was a dreadful idea. I just thought, you, I, I cannot possibly tell anyone in a professional setting, I would like to write 13 books about terrible things happening to children over and over again, and it would be called A Series of Unfortunate Events. But I mean, that's, that just seemed obscene. And so... Um, she owed me some drinks, and 
and she wanted me to write for children. And so I said, look, let's meet in a bar. I'm not going to write a letter saying what kind of books I'm going to write. I'm not going to write a sample. I'm not going to do all of the professional things you're supposed to do if you're going to pitch a book, which already seemed, as a, as a, as a novelist, seemed absurd for me because you don't really you, – you never pitch a novel – um, you, particularly when you're in a beginning, you, you, know, have you a don't novel. go. To, yeah, you write it and then you try to sell it. And so the idea that I didn't even have a novel to sell. In fact, I had a novel that I'd already abandoned. Even I knew was worthless. Um, and uh, so we met in a bar, and uh, I got there early and had you know one round of drinks, um, so that uh, I would for courage. And then I told her this idea that I had, and. She loved it, and I was really embarrassed because I thought it meant that she was a lightweight and that she was going <laughs> to call me the next morning and say, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm really sorry. And that, you know, I, I, how can I tell this broke, desperate writer that I thought it was a great idea and I was definitely going to buy the book and then in the cold light of day that I wouldn't. That was my fear. And then um, she, uh, she called me the next morning and said, uh, I'm, uh, I'm stone cold sober and I still like the idea and, um, and uh, let's, let's do these books. And so we did. And the rest, ta -ta -ta -ta. <laughs> as they say. And then... <laughs> And then you had, of course, the the the. It's been made into a movie. The the first the uh, first three volumes. And, yes. And um and and you were in on that for a while, but then stepped out of that. Was that an unfortunate series of events during that time, or was it just better? Um, to... Well, it took five years to make the movie, so it was everything. It there were parts of it that were unbelievably pleasurable, and parts of it that were really terrible, and um really difficult and I wrote eight well a, a, practically nine drafts of uh, of a screenplay and then I said to them I just don't think I can do another draft and they said that's so funny we don't think you can do another draft either goodbye so I was um, fired uh, and from your own from well uh, uh, um, but I guess it, it's not your own in that way anymore maybe that a was film becoming is never owned by the, by the writer yeah. Yeah. and the whole idea was that it was adapted for film so I didn't actually I, I don't have that kind of uh, stick in the mud attitude that, that, a, that a film ought to be exactly like the book I think you have an author's unfettered vision in the book and a film is just a version of it so I um, like I don't understand that. I, I'm, yeah. I'm always curious if people like the film or they don't like the film, and I'm always curious when I see other films from books how I like them and how they've changed it. But I never think I, I, I never think to myself that's outrageous how they changed it. It shouldn't have been changed because you could go and read the book. That's the nice thing about literature. Yeah, it's, it's not just in theaters for a couple of weeks. You can actually pick up a book anytime. And it's not erased off the planet. Because, yeah. Yes. And so, Let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Not so far. <laughs> Knocking on my head now. Um, so uh, you also just uh, actually did a pick of your own for um, uh, the children's, you, you know, talking about what books should children read. And um, and there's an Italian writer and there's Bears Invading Sicily. Uh, yes. Do you know Buzzati's uh, children's book, The Bears' Famous Invasion of Sicily, which was my uh, favorite book when I was a child. And, um, and, and then a couple of years ago, I abused my power as a, as a children's author uh, within HarperCollins and kind of bullied them into putting this book back into print. Um, 
And, Which um, makes sense because you said it was also just strangely re-released over in Italy around the same time. Well, Dino Buzzati so, is a fairly well-known writer in Italy, but of other things, uh, right? Uh, right, as a, uh, um, kind of a political novelist is my impression of his profile, and um, so it's almost as if there was one children's book by by Joan Didion or something, and, and so it's not that unusual that. He that book is uh, more easily found in Italy, but I was <laughs> I really wanted it <laughs> to be easily found in America, um, and I think it's had limited commercial success. Uh, this American re-release of it, but uh, I'm proud of it anyway. And and that and that was when you were giving gifts out, um, like that year. You for all the the people you knew was that the gift that you were. <laughs> I gave it to a, to a lot of people, um, and I, I I recommend it at every opportunity. Whenever I'm here at WCBN FM Ann Arbor, I try to encourage our viewers <laughs> to go out and purchase a copy of Dino Buzzati's The Bear's Famous Invasion of Sicily in stores now, and also the Egypt game. <laughs> well, the Egypt game is kind of a classic of children's literature. I don't think I the Egypt game... have to read that, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I would like well, to read that. It's a wonderful book, and mm-hmm. um, and that's always been available. And much as I love Zilfa Keatley Snyder, the Egypt game doesn't need too much publicity. It needs no help from me. Yes. Um, only only a glass of root beer. You're listening to Living Writers uh, with Daniel Handler. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, Daniel Handler in the chair. Yes. <laughs> Here I am in the chair. Ahoy, matey. <laughs> is, this, is this for real that your current project is um, uh, to do with pirates? or is that... I am. I'm writing a novel about pirates. Can we do the rest of this in sort of some sort of pirate brogue? No. <laughs> do you mind if I do? <laughs> no, no. Go ahead. Um, I'm... Um... I'm I'm very terrible at any kind of accent or uh, jargon. Um, I um, I uh, so I would be I I would make a miserable pirate at least linguistically. Actually, across the board, I would be a miserable pirate. I'm not particularly brave. I'm really not violent. I don't um 
uh, avarice doesn't flow through my veins with the proper fury required of a pirate. Um, I know nothing about steering ships. I'm not strong. Hoist I don't the main respond sail. well to traditional leadership. <laughs> so why pirates? Why now? Uh... Um, I, I just, um, well, it's a novel I'm working on, so it's hard to talk about it yes. with any um, real knowledge uh, from myself and certainly not from anyone else. But, um, but I just thought, I, it's, it's, I, I think pirates are interesting. Um, the idea first came from the novel when I read that pirates used to have, uh, some pirates had uh, compatriots on land who would yes. sell false maps to sailors who would believe they were going around a cape or something, but really they were heading into a cove uh, where the pirates could get them. And yes. I found it fascinating, a false map. That's, I ne- it, that had never occurred to me, and I found that idea very beautiful. Because books are supposed to be true, maps are supposed to be true, right? Like these things that until you realize things aren't always um, Well, and also the now um, the world is so thoroughly mapped, you couldn't really have that problem. You know, you couldn't wander the streets of Ann Arbor and say, I really want to get to Chicago. And someone could say, oh, it's just like six blocks away. Here's a map. You know, no, that, that wouldn't be a good... No one would <laughs> fall for that. There are plenty of maps and everyone knows how far Chicago is. And there's um, uh, there's such so much more knowledge of the world. And try to imagine uh, negotiating a space where you were really at the mercy of some piece of paper. Right, right. Um, or, or for example, like lights off a shore, because in Cornwall, in England, they also, they it was called wrecking. Like they purposely... Um, wreck people on the land yes. would wreck and then you oh know, yeah absolutely all sorts of 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 tricks like that a treachery um. <laughs> yes well pirates so that's so that's something to look forward to yes i'm um, looking forward to continuing to work on the book and stretching should we say a quick would you like to say a word about stretching um, like i just health. read an article on the importance of stretching and that uh, orchestra conductors tend to live longer uh on average than normal people and one theory is that their arms are over their heads with more regularity uh than most of us and so under the usual 72 hour spell of an article that one finds compelling i'm stretching all the time now soon that will stop <laughs> <laughs> I used to have fresh juice every morning. You know, you read something and then you try it for a while and then just give up. Um, but not on writing. <laughs> nice no. segue there, right? No, Never well, I give don't up read on, on writing. writing very much. I'm actually reading right now a book by uh, Italo Calvino. I think that's how one pronounces yeah, it. Uh, called Six Memos for the New Millennium, which is on writing, but uh, and that, which I found lovely. And then. Um, and then your university's own uh, Nicholas Del Banco has a wonderful book on writing uh, called *The Lost Suitcase*. Um, but there's, uh, but for the most part, I find books on writing to be kind of tedious and strange. And you, you didn't go to an MFA program, did you? I didn't. No. And um, well, you found other forms of funding and what sort of. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sorry to make jobs it like, <laughs> is the word you might be looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. I just for the years following my undergraduate education, I found various positions that allowed me time to write. Um, I, uh, I had a, a very small grant um, from the university and I, uh, and I wormed my way into a year of free housing and stayed on the campus of Wesleyan University for one more year. 
uh, I then had this job with the computer science department of the City College of San Francisco, which was paid as a city employee, and it was a half-time job. So the money was good enough right. that I could pay my rent and write half-time. And then I found this radio uh, gig, which meant that there was a lot of writing. It was a monthly. We produced shows monthly, and so you would do a lot of writing for a few days, and then you would have a lot of time off. And that was also perfect. And I always thought if I couldn't find a position, I would... Uh, perhaps enroll in an MFA program that would allow me the time. But that that was my own right. obsession. No. Yeah, I knew that I was slowly getting better as a writer and that I was in a throwaway a lot. And I had uh, mentors who I kept in touch with and other people who read my work. Uh, but it was the it was the time to write that felt most dear to me. So um, so I'm I'm not um, I'm not one of those people who doesn't have an MFA and gets all snooty about about oh I did it the old fashioned way or something. I just didn't it it didn't I didn't need it. Uh, in terms of the time. So, um, well, that's good to hear. I like you, Daniel Handler. Oh, well, thanks. You seem nice yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here we are at the surface. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let's let's talk a little bit about adverbs. Sure. Um, National bestseller adverbs um, by Daniel Handler. (laughs) <laughs> the one book I neglected to mention in uh, your yes, introduction. My most recent novel, Adverbs. <laughs> and it was, and it was, I always like national bestseller because I feel it's the polite way of saying this was not on the New York Times bestseller list. No, not, I, I, not to, I don't mean to mock the, <laughs> the performance of my novel or something, but I always feel that is kind of a euphemism. <laughs> It's <laughs> um, and, and so out. It was out in hard hardcover in two thousand six, and uh, or wait, or just or released in paperback. Well, I hold the paperback. Yes, in my it is in paperback hand. now. Um, now, so so this is the uh, the writing project, and you're actually touring now. I looked on your site with um, the the composer's dead, and this is something that you created with Nathaniel Stuckey, and that's. Uh, right. That is a, a piece um, uh, for narrator and orchestra, uh, not unlike Peter and the Wolf, uh, mm. that introduces the orchestra to people uh, who might not be familiar with it. Um, and the uh, San Francisco Symphony commissioned the piece uh, about a year and a half ago, and so we debuted it there. And then it's been performed all over the place. It's, it was the most uh, performed uh, piece of music by a living composer uh uh, orchestral kind of composer last year it was performed oh, all over the place. Oh, that's a wonderful uh, title so, then for it too. Like. <laughs> it's a national bestseller, uh, and and so I've performed it. Uh, I've been the narrator at a number of performances, and so I just uh, went and did that up in the town of Kitchener Waterloo, outside of Toronto. Um, and oh, a hotbed for symphonies, right? Uh, well, they ha- actually have a very fine symphony. Uh, it's Canada. Public funding for the arts yes. is such that. They have a very fine symphony that actually goes to other surrounding communities and performs, and it um, brings classical music to people in ways that are uh, often lacking in yes. this great nation of ours. Um, and, and when you say it was commissioned... But I'm sure now that I've complained about it on the radio, everything will change. That's right. <laughs> ah, the power. <laughs> That's right. John McCain is listening right now saying, oh, I just had a great idea. <laughs> that handler's right. <laughs> I'm sure you hear that many times a day. <laughs> <laughs> From John McCain. He will not leave me alone, that guy. <laughs> like, I love that Calvino book, dude. 
man, go back to... Never mind. <laughs> well, he's on a bus tour John right McCain now. is not my candidate of choice, I don't mind admitting. Well, yeah, you formed um, like the, the political action committee, right, for the liberal, uh, the uh, well, liberal I, uh, candidates? Is it's that true? Mr. Stephen Elliott who formed uh, LitPAC, um, which is a, a public action committee that raises money for progressive candidates uh, nationwide. I'm an enthusiastic participant, um, but it is Stephen Elliott, uh, a wonderful writer and uh, an activist who formed that organization. So do you, so you do you um you're 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 actually you're you're doing something aren't I you? I try to put my money where my mouth is. Yes. <laughs> um, and and when you say that the the latest that the composer's dead was commissioned in San Francisco, so was this an idea that they came up with because you they that that the town saw that you had incorporated like music into, for example, a series uh, of unfortunate No, it's just or... that um, Nathaniel uh, Stuckey is a composer I knew personally and I uh, admired his work and we wanted to uh, work together and then one day uh, I was asked to be the narrator for a performance of Peter and the Wolf and Peter and the Wolf is actually a beautiful piece of music but the story and the narration is really annoying I find and also it's just performed to death and orchestras are tired of it, and parents are tired of taking their children to it. And so I said, hey, Stuky, we could do something like this. And then we asked the San Francisco Symphony, and they said, oh, why not? Oh, I get, I'm, I'm eager to see it, actually. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, it will be in picture book with CD in the back form uh, next year from HarperCollins with illustrations by uh, Carson Ellis, who's a wonderful illustrator, uh, most known for uh, uh, doing the album covers for the Decemberists. Um, uh, uh, whose leader, Colin Malloy, is uh, Ms. Ellis's husband or uh, fiancé. They're about to get married. So I could hear it. So you could I hear could, it. So I could hear it. That would be yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's to stop me. No, it's well, not not, <laughs> it's hard to hear now unless you're in, in, a, in a symphony hall, but um, uh, but it it will be, uh, the audio version will be, we'll be the out. back of this beautiful we'll be, picture book that they, Ms. Ellis is drawing as we speak. I hope. Hooray. Yes. <laughs> and, and so she might be having coffee now, but she's working on it in we, general. You gotta give her this time. Very moment, what she's doing. Everyone has their own rhythm. That's right. I'm not giving her a hard time at all. Wait, she's working very hard. She's almost done. What's your work rhythm like then, Daniel? With your is it do you it seems like you might have multiple projects that you're you've you've got going. 